This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. Our episode today is LARPing and Learning. Our guests are author Kate Hannigan and game based learning expert Andrew Peterson. A while back, we hosted Kate Hannigan and made a hands-on interactive game based on her book, The Detective's Assistant. I emceed the event as Kate Warren, the first female detective at the Pinkerton Detective Agency. I ran the entire event in a Civil War-era ball gown. At one point in the game, I looked out over a sea of 300 children, all wearing fake mustaches. I looked over at the adoring, bearded face of Abraham Lincoln. And I saw Kate Hannigan in a fez inspired by one of the scenes from her book, and my heart filled with joy. I thought, I have the best job ever. And then I thought, holy crap, I'm a LARPer. Without really knowing it, I had stumbled down the rabbit hole of live-action roleplay and dragged Stem Reed right down that rabbit hole with me. At that moment, I decided I might as well just grab my styrofoam sword and my 20-sided die and fully embrace my inner geek. So that's what we're going to do today. Our first guest is Andrew Peterson, a coordinator of instructional technology at Ferris State University who has been gamifying higher education. He's helped transform faculty's least favorite lessons and even their syllabi into engaging games. He also uses live-action role-playing as a way to teach everything from history to public speaking. He'll share some tips and tricks he's learned over the years and give all of you noobs some advice for getting started with LARPing and game-based learning. Here's our interview with Andrew Peterson. I'm joined on the interview with Kristen Brentison and Melanie Koss. I was teaching network security at West Shore Community College. The first time I ever tried to teach, it was in a four-hour block night class, and I stood up, and I just talked. Four hours later, I stopped. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have to rattle everybody's chairs so that they could wake up? I don't even remember. (laughs) Like, like it was so bad. And the next week, they all came back, and I was like, well, yeah, we can't do that again. That's not happening. (laughs) That wasn't fun for me. It wasn't fun for you. Let's not do that. And so that kind of started me on this, this path of trying to get students engaged. So all throughout that time, I'm looking for different curriculum. I find this, it made this fictitious company called Seabay. And you were like a entrepreneurial startup, real estate company, but you kept getting hacked. And so your students all became your rapid response team. Mm. And so every week you'd be like, this happened, this happened, this happened. And they would have to like write up their reports. Uh, you know, they'd scour through the logs from the router and look where the IP addresses, where the people are coming in from. And they'd kind of have to have this action report that they'd submit to you. And that was their homework. And it worked beautifully. And I'm like, they're engaged. They're loving this. This is real world. It's applicable. You know, this is what they would do on the job. This is exactly what I want. I don't want to lecture to them. I don't want them to be able to recite something from a textbook from me that's going to be out of date in six months. I want them to be able to figure stuff out. And so that that was kind of one of the first implementations of game-based learning in a formal college setting that I could actively recall. (laughs) So how do you sell this idea of game-based learning and why games are important and this idea of role-playing to the faculty to help them decide to go that direction with their class? So the, the first battle you have is when you start talking about games, everyone has this image that games are frivolous, that they're just, you know, time wasters. It's the, you know, kind of bejeweled blitz, brain candy type thing that you're like, you're getting nothing out of it. You're just wasting time. And you really have to get faculty past that initial shock. And you go, no, this isn't a game. It's an engagement engine. And they kind of, that usually makes them take a step back and they go, "Uh, what? And you're like, yeah, I'm just using this to make them engaged about the content. And they're like, oh, well, that makes sense. You know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Mm Mm-hmm don't lead a horse to water, just convince the horse that it's thirsty and he'll find water. I don't want to give my students water. I don't want to force them to drink from the fire hose of knowledge. I just want them to realize they're thirsty. There's all sorts of water out there. That's what the internet does. There's content everywhere. They can find it. They just have to want to. So if you've got a game or some type of event or environment that makes them inspired to go 
find the content, you win. I've worked with some faculty too, and they start to use games. And it's like, it seems like the easy step is getting the games. Now, how about pushing it to the next level and say, okay, let's talk about role playing. I usually start from, I just go, what learning objective do you hate to teach? And almost every single faculty member is like, oh, there's this one lesson. It is such a pain. I don't like doing it. Students don't like doing it. Every year they tell me on the evaluations they don't like doing it. The book is horrible. You know, you get all of these horror stories and you're like, I'll take that one. And then they're like, oh, thank God. (laughs) It's yours. Do whatever you want with it. So it's not necessarily, you know, how to elevate it from game A to game B to game C to LARP. Ha ha ha. (laughs) So everybody's coming in costume. (laughs) Right, right. So if a faculty member has a great lecture. They're out there. They work. There, there are, I have seen some phenomenal lecturers in my history of working with faculty. The students are engaged. The content's riveting. They, you know, the students are on the edge of their seats. It, it can work. I would never replace that with a game ever because it's working. What you want to do is find the stuff that isn't working. And that's when you go, hey, you don't like to teach about this one specific area. Let's see what we can do. The bar for success there is so small that even if, you know, if half the students like it, it's better than the two students who liked it before, you know, or managed to stay awake. It's like the ability to succeed and improve upon the course is so easy that, yeah, let's do something. And then you iterate, you try something, you see if it works, what did work, what didn't work. You know, it's, it's the game design process at that point. Mm-hmm. After a couple of wins like that, a couple semesters later, you've been doing that, it's been working. They're like, hey, I got to teach this whole new course. What's a big thing that we could do? And then you go, all right, let's make the whole class a game. And they're like, what? You can what? do that? No way. <laughs> uh, and then we have big, fun conversations. So have you had some that have gone like full immersive costume classes? <laughs> yep. The one we've been having the most fun with lately is still in the development process. It's 1968 Chicago, Ooh, that uh, the Democratic fun. National Convention, which has hippies and yippies and reporters and governors and senators and all sorts of big personalities. So you have everything from like state senators, you know, showing up in their shirt and tie to hippies that kind of might have a T-shirt on. <laughs> so it can really provide fully engaged environments. And by the time they're done, the students are like, I can tell you more about 1968 Chicago Democratic national politics now than I ever thought possible. <laughs> tell us a little bit more about the idea behind reacting reacting to the past and how you go from, I want to teach history to I have shirtless hippies running around talking about 1968 <laughs> Chicago. So That what, is a natural progression. I don't know right, how you I, I know. That. I definitely I see, see that. that it's a straight line, but I just, I just want a little... For the uh, listeners. Yeah, for the <laughs> listeners. So reacting to the past started, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago by an individual by the name of Mark Carnes. And kind of the story he always tells is, you know, he got done with class uh, or a semester of classes and he was talking to one of his students and he was like, you know, what, what did you like about this class? And the student was like, well, you're not as boring as most. <laughs> Thank you. And that was it. And then he's like, is that my life's mission to be not as boring as most? <laughs> he's like, eh. So he's like, all right, let's, let's game this. Let's, and this is what I find fascinating about that group. Mark Carnes is not a gamer, doesn't hmm. play games doesn't know about games. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not doing too much of a disservice because this is him, you know, 10, 15 years ago. He's, he's since kind of been brought into the fold a little bit, but he basically built this role-playing game. Uh, and I believe the first one was in about Athens in 403 BC. So he made every kind of person in that environment and assigned them to the students. And they had these kind of big intellectual debates of like, do we let immigrants vote? Do we let slaves vote? And if you kind of come and approach it with your modern mind, you're like, well, of course you should. All of a sudden, it completely messes up their society. You know, they have discussions about, you know, whether they should go to war. And you have one of my favorite roles there. uh, It's actually the fishmonger. So you have this kind of independent guy that's like, I don't care about war one way or the other. And then you have the other factions for that, basically trying to convince him either to go to war or not to go to war. And so you have to do kind of an audience analysis. And if I was on the pro-war faction, I might approach this fishmonger and say, hey, you know, uh, an army marches on its stomach. Uh, We're going to buy all your fish because we're going to have to feed an army. 
And I'm going to use that type of persuasion to try and get him to support this cause. If I'm on the you know, anti-war side, I'm going to be talking to this guy and being like, yeah, a lot of things get blown up during war. So, you know, those fishing boats that you used to have, don't get used to it. And so you're, you're learning about the society and what's important to people through this play. And so that, that was kind of his whole philosophy of get the students engaged, give them a role, give them a reason to care about the content, put in some win and loss conditions, and then give up a lot of control over the day-to-day class. You know, you're not up front lecturing. You're kind of sitting in the back of the classroom kind of acting as the dungeon master, you know, the DM role, the GM role, Mm -hmm. not as the purveyor of content. So as you've watched these different teaching strategies unfold, have there been some big surprises? I'm probably the wrong person to ask that because this is kind (laughs) of what I would expect. Okay. Because when when you design games, this is what you design for. You Mm -hmm. want that emotional response. You know, what was the last game you played? There was a fun experience. There was an engaging experience. Either there was, you know, maybe a loss. There's some emotional connection to it that makes you be able to recall it. And and even the ones that are, are not, like, specifically designed to, like, get an emotional response. Like, you know, if I think back to even just playing, I was playing Coup with a students the other night. And you could watch them interact with each other. And that's what they'll recall. Mm-hmm. So if I ask them tonight about what they were playing on Monday, they're going to be like card and then they did this and then this person lied to me and I thought they were really this one but then that one whereas if I had lectured to them they'd be like well uh, I think we were talking about chapter five so it gives them something emotional to remember it by Mm -hmm. Uh, there's an experience there it's not a passive consumption of knowledge you're actively engaged in what you're doing this is the experience that I had well it seems like it also might take some of that anxiety over speaking in class out of the Mm -hmm. picture, you know, because you're not necessarily representing your own ideas and thinking, oh, I might be wrong. You know, you're convincing a fishmonger. You're you're a general. Mm -hmm. You're not saying it from your point of view. You're saying it from this general's point of view. Mm -hmm. And there's been actually a lot of debate in kind of that group of is it healthy or does it provide for transference of skills if you're learning to be a public speaker as a different role? And that's, there's no answers for it as of yet than, you know, pending research and all that fun stuff. But I guess my two cents is I don't care if you're playing a role when you're public speaking. You know, there's a stage version of Andrew, and then there's mm-hmm. my home life version of Andrew. And, and if I were to be, you know, stage Andrew at home, it would be weird. And so it, you, you kind of have different expectations. You have different nuances, different, you know, vocal characteristics when you're on stage presenting. And I don't think it's it's a bad thing to allow students to kind of build that persona as part of their academic experience. I think some of that also goes back to the role of the teacher in that once you have this experience, you can build on it in your classroom to encourage public speaking or other roles Mm -hmm. in the future. I can speak to one experience I had in fifth grade. We turned our classroom into a medieval village. I still remember so clearly (laughs) I was using the money and running the stores and different roles, and our teacher continued to reflect on that experience and taught us how to apply those skills, bartering or shopkeeping or just different. Mm -hmm. um, And so our teacher, she was very instrumental in helping us apply those skills to other situations. Mm-hmm. That's actually another really key point, too, is a lot of instructors that I talk to, like their first impression is like, you know, game-based learning is a magic bullet and you're just going to replace all the teachers. And you're like, absolutely not. You know, a bunch of engaged students with no guidance is a dangerous <laughs> thing. You don't want that. You need that instructor there to guide them, to kind of bookend that, you know, the content, to wrap it around, to, to actually have substance. And that doesn't naturally occur. Also, that final piece, the wrap-up, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. how do you take what you just did and apply it to overall learning? The discussion right. on That's what did you learn? Every bit of mm-hmm. research that I've found shows how that wrap-up is absolutely critical to tie it back to the content. Otherwise, you're just like, yeah, we played a game. Uh, okay, and? <laughs> oh, yeah, well, we were talking about history. Okay, and, (laughs) you know, you kind of have to keep leading them on and why was this valuable conversation and what were some of the nuances and and why is that relevant to our learning objectives? And pretty soon they're like, oh, wow, we were we were kind of learning some stuff. 
Yeah, that's why we do it. <laughs> what are some tips, whether you're in K-12, whether you're in higher ed, whether you're just trying to game and gamify your work environment? You have to have supportive administration. Mm-hmm. I've, I've seen so many people want to do so many cool things and it just gets shot down instantly. Mm-hmm. And with that thought in mind, I've seen extracurricular activities. So you can kind of have like the outside the classroom classroom. And you can have kind of a gaming club. You can have a LARPing group. You know, you could you can kind of do all of these things on the periphery of school. If you happen to not have a supportive admin, there's still ways to work around it. It's just more time intensive. Mm-hmm. The other thing, look everywhere for games. One of the, the kind of the biggest trends you see right now is escape rooms. Oh, yes. So I've seen faculty develop escape room syllabus edition. And so you have all the clues related to different things that are on your syllabus. So they actually read the syllabus? I need that. Well, they, ha- they have to read the <laughs> syllabus in order to unlock the boxes to get the extra credit points to, you know, yeah. all this stuff. It goes back to your idea before where you said, what's that one thing that you don't like to teach or that doesn't always work? Mm-hmm. And starting right. there and yep, finding day a new one, way to you, do it. You hate and, going over the syllabus? Oh, I got this. But it We're also sounds <laughs> like a way to start your class out in a really engaging way and mm-hmm. set the tone moving forward. Right. No matter what grade level. Because I've seen a lot of schools now are having, the teachers are working with their kids to set their classroom rules. Mm-hmm. I could see taking that same strategy as let's role play some of this. And no, you right. might not do this as a student, but your character might. How would we, what could they do and how, how should we deal with it as a, as a classroom? I've also seen there's a um, East Coast group called Guard Up that does like summer camps and stuff like that. And they, they wrap all of like a, a traditional curriculum into like a week-long camp experience. That's, this is the one that you were telling me took a book. Yeah. And, yeah. And, <laughs> and created a, a role-playing game and the kids caught on to what book it was, right? Yeah. I think it was Animal Farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they were playing kind of a, a, a re-themed version of that. And the students figured out it after like one or two sessions. There was one student that figured it out and all of a sudden went to the library and got all the copies of that book, brought it back, and then had all of their team reading this book. So you go, you basically got and it was well above what their grade level reading should have been. But they were like, if we read this, we'll probably win. And so they were all like studying Animal Farm so that they would know what might happen tomorrow in the game so that they would have a leg up on the other team. So it, it, it really becomes a matter of, you know, how you engage the students in this content. My, my dissertation chair, uh, John Truitt, is uh, really big into the reacting to the past group. And he's even started, I think I might have had a little bit of influence on him. I, I think I can say that. As far as like broadening the idea of what games can do in the classroom. So he's making up like full scenarios. You know, this is full on LARPing. He, uh, the one that he's just been working on is called A Rebel's Guide to Rescuing History. And he's created this future where there's this group called the Sensorium, and they're trying to censor history. And so it's your job as the students who are members of the Memorium to try and preserve and protect the most important things in your region's history. So if I want to preserve some important historical cultural artifact, I need to document what it is, where it is, why it's important, and archive that so the Sensorium can't get to it. And if I'm successful at that, they fail at whitewashing the history. That's fascinating. Right? And, and so all of a sudden, your students care. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to if you said, okay, during this class, everyone's going to have to write 10 papers on the most historically significant things in various geographic regions. Just with the exact same assignment, but without that kind of gamified wrapping, it's like, oh, this is like every class I've ever had. I guess my final question would be, what's one pitch for teachers who are nervous about doing this or haven't done it before, either to gamify a lesson or to try some kind of LARPing scenario? What What's your best pitch for getting them to do that? The worst thing that I have seen for a teacher is stagnation, is to do the same thing over and over just because they did it the year before, the semester before, because someone else showed it to them. Try something different. It doesn't have to be game-based learning. That's obviously what I would kind of promote. But as long as you're trying new things, 
eventually you'll get to game-based learning. It's in there somewhere. <laughs> you'll go to a conference, you'll see something that relates perfectly to something that you want to do, and it's there. If you, if you boil it down to student engagement, an engaged student is never a bad thing. You just heard our interview with Andrew Peterson from Ferris State University. Up next is our interview with author Kate Hannigan. So when STEM Read goes into schools, we often hear the same thing. How can social studies and English language arts fit into STEM? And I answer with books like The Detective's Assistant. Author Kate Hannigan's middle grade novels and picture books tell stories of forgotten figures of history. They also tell stories of the history of STEM. We'll hear from Kate on how she researches and writes her books and why she's passionate about sharing history, particularly women's history, with young readers. Here's our interview with Kate Hannigan. I'm joined on the interview with Melanie Koss, and at one point we'll also hear from Kate's dog, who really, really wanted to be on the recording. I'm Kate Hannigan. I uh, write middle grade fiction and nonfiction, and my most recent book is Cape. This is book one in a series called The League of Secret Heroes, and it's about um, a trio of comic book loving girls who interact with some real life figures from World War II. And in book one, they interact with the ENIAC 6, who are the earliest computer programmers. They got that hunk of metal to work uh, right at the end of World War II and opened up you know, what basically became the modern computer age that we're living in now. Prior to writing Cape, I wrote The Detective's Assistant, which was another uh, fun exploration of mixing fiction and nonfiction and historical figures walking around uh, fictional figures. So Detective's Assistant is about an 11-year-old girl who gets plunked on the doorstep of her aunt's boarding house, and the aunt turns out to be Kate Warren, who is America's first woman detective, and she was hired by the Pinkertons just before the Civil War. So um, I'm realizing that digging up people from the past, especially women whose stories were not even asterisks, they were just kind of, um, you know, pushed pushed to the side and, and sort of forgotten, kind of bringing these people back, dusting off their stories and, and showcasing them for uh, young readers. And I also have a nonfiction picture book biography of the first woman on the ballot for president. Her name was Bella Lockwood. She is a book called A Lady Has the Floor. And she had a great motto. She ran for president in 1884, was the first female candidate to get uh, receive votes. And her motto was, I cannot vote, but I can be voted for, because she was running before women got the right to vote. People often ask me how I choose STEM read books and what makes a STEM read book. And we're often given books that are very hard science um, or, you know, they're aliens or different things. And those books are awesome. But I love to pull in different stories and find the STEM in everything. And I think your books are a great example of of doing that. You know, on the surface, they're historical fiction, but then when you dig into it, you really look into coding and ciphers and computational thinking and history of STEM in a really interesting way. We love that, and we think that this is such a great tie-in to our theme of LARPing and learning. That's great to hear. I'm glad you find it a a good... um you know, kind of mash up of, of some of those ideas and that you like the way it's presented. So so I want to go back. Speaking of history, let's talk about your history. What we like to explore with authors is their time as students and their path to writing. So what were you like as a student? Well, I um, I mean, I will tell you this, that I wasn't, I don't think I was a particularly strong reader or writer. What I was strong at was playing. And I really liked world building and I remember having all sorts of small little figurines and just getting lost in creating my worlds and having the conflict and naming naming people and, and creating incredible settings that just took up, you know, yard space or entire bedroom space. So that was my strength. <laughs> so <laughs> it was um, later in life that I felt like I grew stronger as a as a reader and a writer. Um, but another thing about being a kid, other than just wanting to play, I also had an appreciation for words and language in a kind of strange way. I I remember distinctly having a third grade teacher who would come in and every day in the right top corner of the chalkboard, she would write a new word. 
And I really felt like it was a gift. Every day I loved to see what would go up there. And I, I to this day, can remember the day that she wrote ambidextrous on the board. Mm. And I thought, because that's a really fun word to say. It's a great mouth word. Mm-hmm. And um, and I love the meaning, you know, like the possibility that I could maybe write with my left hand and my right hand. You know? <laughs> so I'm really a lucky person to have grown up in a house where my parents were always reading. We always had the newspaper spread all over the kitchen table at breakfast. So that's where I started doing puzzling because I would eat my cereal and do the the little, you know, puzzles, not just crosswords, but I would do um, the ciphers and things like that. So I always just liked messing around with things like that, but I, I really loved language. And um, and then I think throwing into the mix, I was the youngest of three kids, so I was always nosy about what my brother and sister were up to, and I was a great eavesdropper. And, you know, I think all of those things kind of combined to form an interest in journalism and storytelling and stories, language, written language, all of that was just part of this stew, um, <laughs> you know, that was bubbling that kind of led me, you know, down a path into uh, journalism and words and, and storytelling. So how did you get interested in history specifically then and in telling these forgotten stories? Well, you know, we had a big family, uh, you know, grandparents, aunts, uncles, everybody getting together. And those were my favorite times when a couple hours would pass with the at the dinner table, the big dining table. And I, I remember even sitting under the table with somebody's dog, like one of my aunt or uncle's dogs, and uh, just listening to the laughter and just hearing these stories about when my granddad was a kid. And, you know, my dad's parents came from Ireland, so I would hear stories about Ireland, and it would just create these sepia-toned images in my head of, of people I loved doing really interesting things. I, re- I remember my grandmother saying um, she had lost uh, one of her parents in the flu epidemic um, of 1918, and she would go out and feed the Clydesdale horses in front of, of course, being an Irish family, they ran a bar. <laughs> so she would tell these great stories about what it was like growing up in Philadelphia in the you know eight, 1920s and, and things like that. So... Um, yeah, it was just just this love of hearing how happy it made people, hearing how interesting these lives were, and just um, and then as I made my way into journalism, you know, kind of the facts and the history of real people um, and newspapers being, you know, the great documentation of history as it's being made. Uh, I just I just always loved that, and I always found it really fascinating. And and even when you tell a story, if you're sitting down with your friend and you tell a story, isn't it great when you can say, no, this really happened? (laughs) (laughs) I'm always pulling you into shenanigans now. Um, But one of our (laughs) most recent things that we were speaking on was the idea of future telling. And one of the things that came up where we were talking about the similarities between scientists and writers and both of them are asking questions and they drive their research and their storytelling so so what questions drive what you think about and what you write about I think a lot of stories a lot of books come from a simple question you know for me I'm always checking things out from the library bringing home books to kind of poke around into history and answer little questions that hit me while I'm doing the dishes or you know driving down the road but, like, for example, the book Cape that just came out, it's three superhero girls who are mentored by uh, comic book characters and then interact with these earliest programmers at the, the earliest computer. So that whole, this whole three-book series came out of a simple question of who was Wonder Woman? Like, what, was she the only superhero when she came on the scene? And what's the deal with, <laughs> with superhero females? Like, if you ask anybody, most people, I think, have a hard time naming beyond Wonder Woman, like some great female superheroes. There's lots of people who are knowledgeable about superheroes, but if you ask, like, the average bird, I think people would have a hard time. So when I, when I sort of asked the question, like, who came before Wonder Woman, I wound up getting this great, just kind of stumbling onto the fact that Wonder Woman came on the scene in December 1941. That's when we were pulled into World War II because of Pearl Harbor. And so I thought, oh, my God, these are two great threads. I think mm-hmm. I can do something with this. And that's, that's kind of what led to this, this three-book series about what women were doing that were kind of super heroic deeds, and they were real people. And, and their kids are still alive. In fact, one of, one of the women was still alive. I met in book three, we're going to meet the wasp. 
the women air service pilots, Air Force service pilots. They were the flyers um, in America while the men were overseas. And I met, I went down to a pilot reunion of the WASP down in Sweetwater, <laughs> Texas at Avenger Field. And some of the pilots were still alive. So I, I got to interview a 97-year-old pilot named Jane Doyle who couldn't have been nicer. <laughs> and, um, you know, so history has a beating heart. You know, there's still connective tissue to the people who lived these incredible life-altering moments. You know, uh, when women went to work during World War II, that changed American society forever. I know you like to talk about world building and words and word play and that this is based off of comic book characters. So at what point in the writing process did you decide to integrate comics and graphic novel panels within your text? I didn't want that to seem gimmicky because it felt so organic. So I think what you're talking about is how Cape is a middle grade novel, but there are four chapters that are illustrated. As I was writing, I'm, I've got all this you know, these notes about these awesome early 1939, 1940 female superheroes. And then I've got them walking around the book, talking to my girls. And then, of course, we're going to have a battle with a bad guy. And so I'm taking panel and then I'm, I'm processing it and then I'm writing it in, you know, you know, narrative form. I'm writing a chapter. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I was like, I really feel like this should be visual. So I wrote it. At, at the time, I had been on a, a different project. I had gotten to do a graphic novel about the Great Chicago Fire. So I had just sort of been immersed in how to actually turn in a manuscript of graphic novel form. So you kind of write it like a script. You know, it just sort of felt natural that, that a couple of those chapters needed to be panels. When we, you know, once you write a manuscript, you have no idea if, the, if anybody is going to be like, hey, this is great, let's do something with it, or they're going to be like, yeah, thank you, and good luck on your next project, but this is not interesting. So we, um, my agent rolled with it and took it out into the world, and I was just so happy that Simon & Schuster was like, yeah, we can, this, we can see your vision. We, do, we see what you're trying to do here. To me, it just felt really organic that there were scenes in the book that really needed to be visual because I was pulling on, you know, pulling from, drawing, drawing on a, a history that was visual, visual storytelling. So it was really a fun opportunity, and, and I'm really grateful that I have an editing team that was just all over the idea. They were super psyched for it. How did you start making fictionalized stories based on actual historical events or people? When I was just starting the research, when I stumbled onto Pinkerton talking about Kate Warren and you know, did that test I like to do every time I come across somebody who sounds really interesting is ask a bunch of my friends, hey, you know who this person is? Nobody knew who Kate Warren was. And when I saw, like, that she had this great role in protecting, thwarting this plot, what's known as the Baltimore plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln, I thought we should all know who this woman is. So I dove into the research. But there were a lot of things working against learning about Kate Warren. Number one, the Chicago fire wiped out a lot of Pinkerton's records. So anything that predates 1871, gone. And then, um, you know, her tombstone in Graceland Cemetery here in Chicago says, you know, that she was born in Sheming County, New York in, I think it was like 1833. So getting a whole, you know, I contacted historical societies in different places in Sheming County, New York, and there's no, no paper survived from 1833 that I could find. So from a creative standpoint, I look at that and I think I don't have enough material to do, I think, a fair biography of Kate Warren. And I think some people have, to, you know, just taken that plunge and done a great job with it. But I, I just didn't feel like that was a complete enough story because it really it just goes, her life just goes from when she walked into Pinkerton's office forward, and she did not live a long life. She, uh, she died soon after the war. I think she died in 1868, if I remember right. What's a writer to do? So I thought, <laughs> okay, well, this is kind of great. She, it's anybody's game what happened before she walked into Pinkerton's office. So I wrestled back and forth with the idea of presenting her as historically accurately as I could, and yet honoring so honoring her true story as as told by Pinkerton, which I guess has its own layer of he was quite the storyteller. So, you know, you have layers of fiction within the nonfiction. 
and then wrapping all of that in a fictional story. So I pulled everything I could from Pinkerton's writings about the cases, which I thought were fascinating. Like she was a master of disguise and she had all these great alias names and she just put herself out there in the wackiest, wackiest, kind of dangerous, kind of edgy moments with the Pinkertons. So I tried to pull in that, honor that, but then um, I just thought, you know, I don't have enough for a, a biographical, like a, a nonfiction story. So I thought she's, I would love to put a kid on her doorstep and we see all these crazy, awesome Pinkerton moments through the eyes of a kid. I think because so much of what we do in life traces back to who we were as a child, mm-hmm. I still feel like I look at life through the eyes of the 11-year-old I was. And I know that at 11, I would have loved to have had a story showing me a woman, a historical figure who was just at the center of the action. And that's what I wanted to create is a story for kids to say, look, you know American history and most of it is populated by men, but really some chicks were there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that really, I kind of got bitten by that bug, that wonderful historical fiction genre bug where it's like, oh, wow, I can have something really grounded in a moment uh, and get the historical stuff, try to be as accurate as possible. I tried to find menus from the 1860s. I actually found some wonderful person who had a blog on awesome old, you know, antique things. And I remember you know, seeing a post she said, oh, my God, I got a stack of antique menus. So I messaged her and said, hey, have you got anything from New Orleans 1860? And she's like, she sent me, you know, photographs of her menus. And so I was able to accurately include what would have been on a menu at a hotel in, Saint, in um, New Orleans in 1860 because my characters go there. And wouldn't you know it, it was macaroni and cheese. So how do you balance uh, the fact versus the fiction in your writing? It's hard because I would go to bed at night wrestling back and forth with, oh, I've got too much Pinkerton fact in here. I'm going to bore the socks off of the kid reader. (laughs) And then I would go to bed the next night and say, oh, my God, I've got too much fiction. I'm not doing Kate Warren right here. I I need to be more factually truth of what happened, like what she was doing, what what she was wearing, and what a case was like. So I went back and forth, and it, you know, it's a tough balance. But at the end of the day, I would wrap myself in the mantle of, all right, this is fiction. But I think I should issue a caveat there, too. I do feel really strongly that when you're writing for kids, and um, like with the nonfiction I do, I don't do invented quotes. And um, I try to, you know, anytime I quote a, a figure from history, I have the um, source material there, you know, uh, like with Kate Warren. I think there were a few things in the detective's assistant that are historically, like there's a telegram, and that is a telegram that Pinkerton actually sent to the Chicago office. And there are a couple lines in there that Kate Warren actually said, and that's based on like her account that she gave to Lincoln's law partner after the assassination when he, he was, his name was Herndon, I think, and he was compiling all sorts of, you know, information from people who had worked with Lincoln and so that he had interviewed everybody involved with the Baltimore plot. You know, I think the bar should be really high for kids' books and the writers who work for, you know, producing books for kids, that bar should be very high and the standards should be high. But um, So I try to do that with the historical fiction, but, but also make sure that, you know, if it's fiction, you know, I can kind of, you can get it. There's a little bit more wiggle room. I love that you talked about the costumes of the time and the, you know, all of the things that Kate Warren was doing and, you know, you have superheroes and when you do your presentations, you have the kids dress up as different people from history. So why do you include that? Why are the clothes and the costumes an important part of those stories? How do we pull kids in? Like, I think kids might turn off to picking up a historical fiction. Kids might turn off to something that they feel like is going to be a lesson. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, so how does, how does any of us get pulled into stories or moments? And that's by relating to the very personal, like what people eat, what a street might smell like, what you might step in, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like what people might be named, like all of those things matter. I tried to find really antique, fun names for the characters. And like Nell, her real name is Cornelia, and um, she's named for her kind of ne'er-do-well dad, Cornelius. 
and um, you know, I think it's fun. And then she gets the nickname Nell that Kate One gives her. So I think for kids, you know, name names matter. You know, name people. You know, we all have associations with people in our lives who names different things. But but a really easy way to connect from you know one generation to a you know totally different generation is what people are wearing. And with Nell, I just kept thinking about how uncomfortable her outfits must have been and, and the idea that she goes from being this, you know, one girl in a family of a bunch of brothers and her mom passes away and she, she gets plunked on Kate Warren's doorstep and Kate Warren is a lady. She's got a beautiful dress and she wears great hats. She goes out in her clink clacky little shoes and she walks fast and they go tip tappy. You know, here's young Nell and she's in the presence of a lady and she would not mind being a lady and so she gets this dress but the dress is highly uncomfortable I mean just looking at when I was writing I found this great book on um, uh, Victorian photography because I just wanted to get a picture in my head of who Nell was and as I flip through the pages you know no one looks comfortable or happy (laughs) (laughs) something I really deliberately did in this is um, I made Nell feminine, because I think a lot of times when we talk about, you know, heroic girls and books, I'm so sorry, my dog is in the background barking. (laughs) Sorry. Um, So often in books, we have uh, girls that do heroic things, but they aspire to be boyish, the the tomboy, the scrappy tomboy. And I just thought, you know what, what if we have a girl who is scrappy and wants to be at the center of the action and is fearless? And has, you know, a little bit of an attitude, but she also wants to wear a dress because she's feminine. You know, it's it's okay. It's okay to jump on a horse and you're in a dress or, you know, clomp along in in some boots and um and still be be a girl. So right. so part of that clothing was also to kind of uh put a flag on there that she's she's not a girl in boys' clothing wanna wanting to be male and heroic. And courageous and at the center of the action. She's doing all that in a dress. You know, I like to wear a dress and fight crime, too. Save the world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't feel as capable of fighting crime when I am in pants. I feel like there's something about the dress (laughs) and the skirt that inspires my fierceness. You know, for me... It's all about the boots, and I'm starting to see that as I'm, I'm working on um, the series that just came out with the superheroes. The first book is called Cape, the second book is called Mask, and the third book is called Boots, because that's, you know, kind of the superhero costume. But I'm really thinking about how awesome boots are. Like, <laughs> boots are great for superheroes, but also boots played in very big in what Nell was wearing with the detective assistant, because it was like her, her, I had it as her symbolic link to her dad, those are her daddy's boots. But who loves winter in Chicago? I wear boots from basically like November to April. Mm-hmm. I wear boots, um, but I wear them with my skirts and dresses. And there is, yeah. I know it sounds silly, but there is something very powerful about wearing knee-high boots. Yeah, because you can just trog through, you know, plow through snow and puddles and everything. Like nothing will slow you down. <laughs> <laughs> Some people ask you if this is a book for girls. <laughs> and and you've gotten some pushback even from schools that you go to um, about whether or not boys should read it. Do you want to right. share that experience? Oh, you bet I do. <laughs> <laughs> so sure, sure. Um, one of the first school visits I got asked to go on, um, I was messaging with the librarian, and, um, you know, I think she had, you know, best intentions in mind and everything so that it didn't turn ugly or anything, but she said, Great, looking forward to your visit, and we will have all the girls in the library, and we'll just keep the boys in our classroom. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Those boys can come here about this book, too, because if we don't show boys heroic women and women at the center of the action and women solving problems and dealing with a crisis, we they won't have any examples of it. And so, you know, there's lots of blood and guts and gore and assassination and horses and poop <laughs> on the road in the middle of Chicago and, you know, and somebody else comes, a cart cleans it up. I mean, there's plenty of things to uh, appeal to all genders in this, in this book. But um, the idea that I just don't like the idea of boy books and girl books. I devoured Harry Potter along with the rest of the known universe. And I'm not, 
a boy with black hair and, and, you know, glasses. I can identify with that. And I think if we don't ask boys to identify with protagonists who are female, we're, we're really doing them a disservice. We really are. There's a range of, of people out there and a range of leaders and a range of problem solvers, and they, they're going to look different than young white boys. <laughs> and young white so boys can, need to see that, right? <laughs> yeah, all of us do. All yeah. of us need to see black heroes, gay heroes, Asian heroes, Native American heroes, all of us. We can see the whole range of it, and we can identify in the universal things. They, maybe they lost a, a family member. Maybe they've lost their dog. We've all had those experiences, and we can. And that's what books are so great about. They take us places. They put us in people's shoes that we wouldn't ordinarily be able to go to in the day-to-day, and that's why we read. So I have actually had somebody, you know, walk up while I'm selling and pick up the book and just say, you know, oh, I have a son, and I have to do that. Well, I think your son could like this too, you know, and that's so to lots of boys, lots and lots of boys. We, we, we do them a disservice when we tell them there are boy books and girl books because they're just books. And good stories. (laughs) Right, absolutely. So are there any other stories, women in STEM, women in history, that you're dying to tell that you're getting around to or you'd you'd love someone to uh, write a book about? Oh, yeah. I mean, every single day. uh, My poor children, whenever they're telling me a story, and all of a sudden I get this far away look in my eyes, they'll be like, oh, what did I just say? You're going to write a story about this person, aren't you? (laughs) So it's like I'm always thinking... But right now, um, I have, I think I have eight books in the pipeline, and a couple of them are, um, just came from a simple question of, you know, can you name a female inventor? That was a, a, I have one coming out, like, in the next year or so. It's a, it's a woman who invented something. And I asked my friend, name a female inventor. I'm like, can you guys? I'll ask you, name a female inventor. Marie Curie. <laughs> Most people say Marie Curie. She's a good answer for many questions. Nobel Prize winner. Yeah, yeah, I've I've read a draft of the book, so I won't I won't spoil it. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, so um, Josephine Cochran invented the dishwashing machine. So of course, a woman invented the dishwashing machine, right? I was thinking to myself, if a kid were in class and they were doing something on scientific invention, how many women would be represented? You know, and and like Belva Lockwood, the story about the woman who ran for president, and she did many other things, but you know, she was the first woman on the ballot. Part of that came out of going up to my kid's school on president's presentation day where the kids had to dress like their president and stand by their big report and what are the like what's 50 percent of the class supposed to do what are the ladies supposed to do so some of the girls were in suits you know in a beard like lincoln and a top hat or whatever some were jackie kennedy uh, a couple eleanors but you know it's kind of like you know Mm -hmm. ah, we need more representation so so maybe someday someone will dress like belva at one of those things yeah so there are there are lots there's a few in the pipeline coming, and then up in my room, I guess it might be okay to admit this here, but I use Chicago Public Library, and I have four cards going because I have three children and my own. So I, I use four cards, and I'm evidently a library book hoarder. So I have stacks and stacks <laughs> of books inside in my office, and um, some of the biggest ones I'm interested in are the women who were, you know how the media is taking a hit right now, the women of World War II who really pushed to be able to go to the front line and cover the war. And there, there are some really interesting uh, women. World War II is kind of my jam right now. So some of those guys. And um, uh, I, have, I, I have just a long list of people that are fascinating well, <laughs> that I want to keep writing about. Very good. Well, we're excited to keep reading about it, too. So I, I just want to... Thank you for all of the stories that you share and all of this great forgotten history that you're bringing back to light and back to life. We really love working with you and your books. (laughs) Thanks. Well, I like working with you. It's been really fun. Thanks for taking an interest because um, I think, you know, showing kids that women were there back in the day and, um, you know, that, you know, they were an actually, you know, like it was an actual person and maybe that person became like, the world's expert code cracker from World War II because she liked doing puzzles, you know, those code crackers. And even now, like people who go into computer science, a lot of it is because they they have an eye for certain things, whether it's like, you know, puzzling or, um, you know, things like that. Who knows what what your trajectory, you know, what it will lead to. But 
these people who did amazing things. They were kids once and they had an interest and then they just went deeper on that interest. So I think it's important for kids to see that. You just heard our interview with author Kate Hannigan. So are you ready to try game-based learning? Insert quarter, ready player one. You don't have to jump in whole hog by dressing up in a Civil War era ball gown. You can start small, bring some games into your library or classroom or office, play them and see what happens. Find things that you hate to teach and try to gamify them. Before you know it, you'll be wearing a fake mustache and LARPing with the rest of us nerds. And if you do, tweet at me and share your story. Photos are encouraged. By the way, if you're missing Kristen, don't worry, she'll still show up from time to time on interviews and even here in the studio. But Kristen launched the Failure Bites podcast, where she interviews leaders and experts about their failure stories and the things they've learned as a result. People fail all the time, so it keeps Kristen pretty busy. Check out her new show on WNIJ.org, NPR, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to watch or play The Detective's Assistant, The STEM Read Experience, we're hosting an encore presentation on May 4th, 2020 at NIU with Kate Hannigan and Abraham Lincoln. We're also premiering our new game this spring, Scythe, The STEM Read Experience, based on the novel by Neil Shusterman on April 21st and 22nd, 2020 at NIU. Neil Shusterman will be there to play along with us, glean some meeples, and he'll also be joining us here on the STEM Read podcast in a future episode. Because we can't get enough of Kate Hannigan, she'll also be joining us for a professional development event in Lake County, Illinois in June. And at NIU's Future Telling Conference, where STEM experts and science fiction authors will meet to share the latest in bleeding-edge research and innovative storytelling. If you're a writer who wants to science up your fiction, or a scientist who wants to collaborate with writers, or an educator looking for fresh ideas on STEM and writing, join us at NIU June 24th through 26, 2020. Learn more about all of these events at stemread.com. Thanks to our guests, Kate Hannigan and Andrew Peterson, and our contributors, Melanie Koss and Kristen Brentison. You can find more information on today's show on our show notes. The STEM Read Podcast is produced in association with WNIJ. Support for the STEM Read Podcast comes from NIU STEAM and Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. Thanks for listening.